there's no way to replicate a concert just by watching it on your laptop. Uh, and it's the same thing with auction houses. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This month, amid skyrocketing COVID infections that are wreaking havoc on America's woefully inadequate healthcare system, the art industry had a health-related reckoning of its own. Ever since the forced cancellation of the marquee spring evening auctions, which regularly set the tone for the year by selling over a billion dollars in art, Christie's and its arch-rival Sotheby's have been thrown into turmoil, requiring mass layoffs in their ranks. A question hung in the air. With the pandemic battering the economy and crippling most traditional businesses, could the age-old auction houses find a way to adapt to the moment and survive? The answer came in the form of a series of unprecedented, experimental, and perhaps slightly kooky auctions that saw Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips each holding a novel hybrid of traditional and digital sales that were broadcast live over the internet. As usual, however, the battle that really mattered was the one between Sotheby's and Christie's, the two perennial arch rivals who, as usual, took two very different approaches to this unique moment. To find out what happened, I'm very happy to be joined by Artnet News senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella to explain the buildup to this strange auction week, and then art business reporter Nate Freeman to narrate what happened in the suspenseful, climactic Christie sale on July 10th. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Eileen. Thanks for having me. So, as you absolutely don't need me to point out, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. And yet, somehow, we also just went through a surprisingly fascinating and suspenseful auction week. I want to talk to you about these auctions, but first, can you lay the groundwork a bit by describing the state of the art market this year that was building up and leading up to these auctions? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody was in a state of shock at how rapidly things came to a close and a lockdown. Like we were all here in mid-February planning our armory show visits and our TFAP visits and things started escalating somewhat rapidly. So for the auction houses, they're probably just at the very start of the curve of business getting for their May sales three or four months out. So things are probably just starting to heat up at that point. And then we go into a complete and total lockdown. So I think the first couple of weeks were just kind of a, a state of shock on everybody's point. And they were very much dealing with a moving target very early on in the process. Christie's was offering um, myself and another small group of our journalists uh, conference calls and conversations with their top executives. And they were trying to be communicative, but you could tell very much that they were trying to figure it out themselves. Mm -hmm. So auction houses have historically been very lead-footed when it comes to innovating their marquee market events, the exquisite glamorous evening sales that reliably in the spring and the fall drum up hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions. Why have the big guns been so slow in adapting their evening sales to a more digital kind of, of, of platform? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And what they have done in the past is kind of go in fits and starts. Like 
I know this is a long time ago, but back in 99, when internet companies were taking over, eBay tried to form some kind of an e-commerce venture with Sotheby's. And maybe that was just too early. People just weren't comfortable with buying big ticket lots online. And that's evolved over time where people have gotten more comfortable. But I still think there's a little bit of a a kind of a psychological barrier sometimes to buying art online. And then, of course, also, if you're Sotheby's and Christie's, you want your digital initiative to look just as sleek as your, you know, York Avenue sale room or your Rockefeller Center headquarters. So the bar is really high in order to be able to sell something of the caliber of, you know, say a Mark Rothko or a Francis Bacon. You want it to to be somewhat similar, somewhat mimicking the, uh, you know, IRL in real life experience. And I, I think that's part of why, it's taken a while for them to evolve and, and get on board with these things and then really, you know, be convinced that collectors and dealers bidding would feel comfortable bidding at this level through this platform. Hmm. So it's, I think it's kind of easy to understand why art fairs would struggle in going online because art fairs are basically these shopping malls that are disguised as giant anything goes parties with flowing champagne and constant socializing But when you go online, that entire social aspect evaporates. So auctions, on the other hand, have have always been shopping combined with a competitive sport aspect, with a little bit of theater. And this is something that you'd think would actually adapt pretty well online because you've got a lot of television and you've got movies and you've got entertainment of that kind that is translated very well online. So... How did the auction houses decide to step up to the plate and evolve what they were doing to go online? Well, and I guess one of the things that occurs to me is even though they have been improving their digital initiatives, I think it's more for the observer. Like maybe if you were going to bid on a a Jeff Koons at 20 million, you as a collector, you might just feel more comfortable talking to your specialist and being in the action that way, but like watching it happen. Um, So I think that the real pivot this time around is there's really no other option than to adapt radically and bring everything online, whether it's the screens of the specialists that Oliver Barker was speaking to or fielding the bids. And I mean, the Sotheby's sale that was announced, this auction of the future, that was announced just a month before it happened. So that was on May 29th. That really tells you, like, we're down to the wire in terms of this platform. This is four weeks out. And Sotheby's said it came as a result of intense brainstorming with their tech team. It truly, you know, that was invented out of necessity. If there was going to be any type of true event-driven, multi-cities, auctioning, multi-million dollar art, nothing short of what happened had to happen. So I really want to get to that Sotheby's sale because that was really the first bellwether of, of this pandemic moment. But before we get there, right now we're in the middle of this depression scale economic crisis. Millions of people have lost their jobs, their protests in the streets over entrenched white supremacy and inequality. The United States and China are pitted in a fierce battle for world hegemony. Who could conceivably want to buy an artwork priced in the millions of dollars in a climate that is so full of chaos and uncertainty? Isn't it kind of obscene also? Yeah, I mean, it's obscene and it's also surprising. But then at the same time, 
these auction houses not only know their clients, but they know their industry. So, you know, it was impossible to think about a, a, a Francis Bacon selling for 60 million, even backing out just a, a month or two. But now that I've been talking to advisors and, and other clients of the auction house in the lead up to the sale, they were co- pointing to a couple of factors. One is that really there has been a lack of event-driven market events. You know, I know that we had the online viewing rooms as a substitute with the fairs, but the feedback I'm getting is that those things take place over a couple of days. It's not, you know, this huge event that's packed into a small um, time frame. And then the other side of it is just purely business side. One of the attorneys I was speaking with today mentioned that, you know, she has a lot of clients that are dealing with estates and the estates oh. have to have paid taxes on them. You know, whether you own stocks or real estate, oftentimes with Uber wealthy people, artwork is a big component of that. And if you can't get anybody to see your work or value it, you're really wondering where the market is at. So there's a real hunger to see a public auction market, even in an unprecedented time when a lot of people are out of work and we're all on lockdown. The art business is still a business and the auctions are a major, major barometer of that. They said that, but you can even see the auction houses grappling with that because a couple of months ago, they were saying that there was going to be at least some form of a live in-room component. And, you know, we were all waiting to see how that played out with the New York City cap on how many people could be gathered at once. So eventually they had to admit, yeah, there won't be an in-person component. It will be all online. So that's the confluence of factors that have made all this possible. So in addition to this larger market question of buyers and sellers, there's also Another factor that's taking place behind the scenes when it comes to the auction market, because for years, the auction world has had a pretty strict hierarchy where at the top you have Christie's, the kind of industry leading auction house owned by Francois Pinot, the luxury goods billionaire that has always staged the biggest, splashiest auctions. And then you've got Sotheby's, which is the perennial arts rival and competitor that can get in some really good wins every now and then, but typically is the the second place auction house. When you look at the way that the sales were held and the material that was there, one dealer, uh, he described it as responsible in terms of the material that they got, the prices that they offered it at. And they all sort of played to their strengths in a way. Like, you know, you're talking about how Christie's has these big um, splashy sales. They kind of stuck to that and they had some really trophy consignments. I mean, Sotheby's did have the most expensive work in terms of the bacon, but you kind of saw that they all stuck to their strengths. I do think that all the houses made a, a very concerted effort to have these really tightly choreographed sales, which means that you had to blend both impressionist and modern with post-war and contemporary. And when you have to consolidate those two sales into one marquee sale, you really have to focus on hitting the right price point and offering the right material, which is what you need at a time like this when the broader backdrop is uncertain. So you've spoken a little bit about the Sotheby's sale, and I'd like to actually delve into what happened in it. So how did Sotheby's evolve its auction strategy to adapt to this moment? What was its sale like? It did feel a little futuristic and sort of disembodied at some points, but I think that that's inevitable when you have, you know, these rows and tiers of phone banks and your specialists are all dressed up and standing six feet apart and they all look amazing. And it was just this almost like a sci-fi type of setup, but it was 
it was done really well. You never saw any pauses. Oliver Barker, who helmed the sale, was based in London, and he clearly had this big bank of screens in front of him and at all times had a lot of information being fed to him. And I've seen him handle in real life auctions and he does a very skillful job. And he managed to parlay that into very skillful uh, negotiation and acceptance of bids and kept it moving along. And that's just, that's a real skill. And the camera angles were there at all times. Like if there were specialists bidding, it was right on them. It wasn't like you had to search for information or, or wonder where this is coming from and what's happening. Also, each time that a lot came up, there was a screen right alongside there with, you know, close-ups of the work, background information, the estimates. So everything was, I think, displayed in a way where you didn't have to go hunting for information. It was actually a pretty user-friendly experience. I thought there was a one detail about how hard Sotheby's was hustling to make this thing uh, a sales success. They actually had their female specialists wear jewelry from an upcoming jewelry auction to model it in an almost QVC manner. I did notice that there was a lot of bling on certain specialists. What better product placement can you have than to drape a specialist in diamonds? And as I understand it, Drahi is very much a fan of that kind of cross-marketing. And like we all know that Uh, margins are extremely tight when it comes to the auction business because, you know, houses for years have struggled with trying to make huge profits on these major works that they're selling. And sometimes they have to give away really intense guarantees. And somebody who knows Drahi's management style well explained to me that he's very much more interested in streamlining things or perhaps not having things so rarefied or uh, with Mm -hmm. so much siloed all the time. How did the sale actually do when it comes to getting bids on very expensive artworks? It did really well. I rarely saw instances where things were met with a lack of attention. And that's what I mean when I say that things were choreographed because the majority of things either have direct guarantees from the auction house and or an outside uh, third-party bid. So I think going into it, there's a level of confidence where they know where their demand is at. And worst comes to worst, if you you have a third-party backed painting that doesn't draw intense bidding while you're in the sale room, well, you still lined up a buyer for it. So the top lot for the sale was a gigantic Francis Bacon triptych that was um, called triptych inspired by the Oresteia of Aeschylus from 1981. And it came to auction with a $60 million to $80 million estimate. Now, this thing actually managed to sell for $84.6 million, which is a astonishing <laughs> price, especially in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis. What do we know about the person who bought this top lot of the sale? I don't know who actually bought it, but there was really intense bidding from one of Christie's um, top specialists, whose name is Gregoire Bio. And everybody who was watching the sale closely noticed uh, this very unusual activity that I've never seen before, where the bidding on the Francis Bacon opened around um, 48 million. And there was uh, some momentum where it went from 48 to 52, then 55. And somewhere around um, 60 million, we noticed that a new bidder had come in. And Oliver Barker identified this as an online bid. But at 60 million, usually the next increment is 61 million with that level. If you raise your hand and say, you know, I want it, then you 
gone up by another million. So this unusual pattern emerged where the person bidding online, who was said to be from Asia, uh, came in with a, a bid higher of $100,000. <laughs> and then the next bid was $61 million, So that was $900,000. And it went on this way from $60 million all the way up to hammered down at $74. So for $14 million worth of bid, it was the online bidder bid 100,000 and then Gregoire's bidder bid 900,000. I've never in my life seen that kind of a disparity. Um, so I asked Sotheby's about that as an unusual perk following the sale. And uh, they said, it's actually a rather boring answer, which is that the uh, capability of the online bidding platform only allows you to make a maximum bid of 100,000. Uh, I thought it was some genius like mouse versus elephant strategy, but it was, it was just a limitation. <laughs> At a certain point, they might even turn away a mouse versus elephant strategy because sometimes when the bid gets into the stratosphere like that, an auctioneer will be like, no, I won't accept that. So that was actually really funny and perplexing until it was explained to me that it's a, a simple computer maximum capability of $100,000. So this sale eventually hit a total of $363.2 million across three different tranches of art that were offered. There were eight artists' records that were set, five works sold for um, more than $10 million. Phillips had their sale next, and they had a, a white glove sale, which means that it was a flawless sale of zero buy-ins, and it brought in $41.1 million, including the premium, which was very impressive. I want to blow past that and get to the, the buildup for Christie's. So what was the strategy that Christie's decided to adopt in doing these pandemic sales? And how did it differ from the Sotheby's strategy? Their strategy differed from Sotheby's because the key thing was taking place across four different cities with four different auctioneers. As you probably know, the order was Hong Kong, then Paris, then London, and then ending in New York with the bulk of the uh, most expensive works of the sale. And, uh, you know, they they talked about it as a relay sale. So there was little breaks in between. So it was a mixture of impressionist and modern and post-war masterpieces. A lot of them were fresh to the market. And their strategy was just to try to hone it down and calling it one and hosting it across four different cities around the world in different time zones. Okay. So I think we've set the table here. We have an insurgent Sotheby's with a cost-cutting new owner who's retooling the operation to compete with Christie's. You've got a very strange and volatile marketplace. You have Christie's having a very innovative and ambitious sale, the first time they've ever attempted anything like that. Thanks very much, Eileen. As they say in the sporting world, let's throw to Nate Freeman to give us the play-by-play on the actual Christie sale. I'm here. I'm glad to be on. Nate, this is your first Art Angle appearance. That it is. And very happy to have you. So you've been a habitué of auction sales rooms for years. You've been reporting on sales all over the world. You've mastered the arcane arts of spotting bidders and getting sellers to tell you, you know, their secrets. What did you make of the auctions that were leading up to the Christie sale in terms of how they compared to the feeling of being in the thick of an auction room? Well, I mean, nothing compares to 
actually being in the sales room during an, an evening auction. The drum up to the actual uh, first gavel hit is a cavalcade of billionaires and their, their wives and girlfriends coming into these swank auction house lobbies and you're, you're mingling and there's champagne. And I don't think there's any way to reproduce that in video form. So I don't think that when it came to what Sotheby's and Phillips were doing, um, they were trying to recreate an evening sale like they were uh, in the before times. I think what they were trying to do was really just focus on the business at hand. Nate, you're blowing up. I'm sorry. <laughs> is that a source? <laughs> it is, but but <laughs> these things happen. I, I'll, I'll try to mute the This is a good time for me to say that Nate Freeman is also the author of Artnet's wet paint gossip column. So he's constantly getting inundated with tips <laughs> from his tipsters. Gossip never sleeps, Andrew. So the Christie sale happened last Friday. How did you decide to approach covering this very strange new kind of weird auction format? Well, you know, instead of going to the auction house at Rockefeller Plaza and looking at the works in person and talking to sources while there, you know, maybe having lunch with a few specialists. What I did was I trailed, quote unquote, Sarah Friedlander, who's the deputy chairman of the post-war contemporary art department, for 24 hours before uh, the sale happened. So I got a sense of... Virtually. Virtually, yeah. I wasn't actually there with her. But I got a great sense of how Christie's was preparing for this very new kind of hybrid sale. Obviously, Christie's is prepared for any major evening sale, had multiple teams working on individual lots to make sure that everything kind of was choreographed ahead of time with guarantees, with uh, bidders that could play off of each other. They really just had everything sort of tied up beforehand. And that's why they were able to have such a successful sale. Hmm. So let's get to the sale. How, how did it actually kick off? How did they begin the festivities? So uh, things kicked off a little late, actually. Uh, they weren't really trying to be like a rock star, keeping the fans at bay as the anticipation grew. I think this was a technical difficulty. But when it did begin, it began with a run of a, uh, a few works that were being sold in Hong Kong. And it kicked off with this incredible painting by Martin Wong of the Statue of Liberty, sort of in repose, crying. And it seemed like sort of a an acknowledgement of the, the crisis that we're in right now. And I, I found that that was a sort of brazen way to kick off the sale, to be like, look, we know that caseloads in America are getting worse by the day. We're in an unprecedented health crisis. Hmm. We're going ahead with the sale. And with that, like the sale just really started to rip the first few lots in Hong Kong. You know, you had a record-breaking George Kondo sale which I don't think that any, anyone was really expecting. It only uh, eclipsed the record by $700,000. And just to see these records breaking for artists was a really great opening uh, run for the sale. Mm -hmm. And then it, it went to, to Paris and to London, of course, all digitally. It was a fun gambit to have this sort of multi-continent approach. But at the same time, with no one in the rooms, it was just people calling in or bidding online. One, one thing that I thought was interesting was that even though you had these four sales rooms that were scattered between Hong Kong, Paris, London, and New York, they all had 
different lighting. You know, you had a very brightly lit New York stage kind of set. And then in London, you had this almost Caravaggio-esque kind of dark, you know, lighting with all these dramatic shadows. There was something like uh, the visualization of a global art marketplace. Mm-hmm. It did seem to be a kind of a, a remarkable way of doing business. But do auctioneers like to share the stage with each other? I think there's certainly a camaraderie among uh, anyone at Christie's who's trying to make money for Christie's. I, I don't think that personal ego is getting in the way of the greater goal, which is to beat Sotheby's, obviously, but also just just to make a lot of money and, and, you know, and keep their clients happy. So how did the competition work out? Were there bidders in New York that were bidding with the New York auctioneer or was there more crossover? Did they joust with each other? There was certainly some crossover as there would be in any evening sale in London or New York where you have people calling in from the other side of the pond that it's not taking place in. And then, of course, from Asia uh, and all, all over the world. And so I think that it, it was just a matter of where the work that the region wanted was being sold. So, you know, I think you would have New York collectors calling in to bid on the Matthew Wong uh, piece in Hong Kong, certainly. I think that there was some from the Americas on that lot. Just because it was being offered in Hong Kong doesn't mean that it was just uh, appealing to Asian collectors. And Martin Wong, by the way, I, I believe you were you were friendly with with Matthew Wong. Yeah, I'm sorry, Matthew Wong. Yeah, yeah, Matthew Wong is having an incredible moment for an incredibly sad reason. He took his own life last October, uh, which uh, was a real loss for for the art community, not just in New York but globally. He was a real presence, um, and what we saw over the last two weeks, not just at Christie's, but also at Sotheby's where the record was broken and then at Phillips, I, I think that there's very little that can hold back the excitement around his work. In a kind of a ghoulish and very sad way, he, he's the star of this auction week. I mean, it, at Sotheby's, one of his paintings sold for $1.8 million, which is uh, astonishing for somebody whose artworks never really broke the the five figure barrier beforehand. Well, the one thing that does sort of come for me is I was friends with Matthew, um, and he was fascinated by the art market. He would always ask me about why this artist was blowing up, why this painting was this much money. You know, in, in a very academic way, he was you know reading our coverage, and uh, it's like we chat about this endlessly. And I think that he would be tickled and and just fascinated by the way that the global art market has responded to his works. Now, you know, like you said, he didn't really sell works for anything out of the five-figure range, and all of a sudden he's selling for almost $2 million. I think he would be, you know, he's looking down upon this happening with with a lot of fascination and glee, I think. Hmm. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. So walk me through a couple of the high points and the tennis match, you know, competition that was behind them. Well... I, I, I think that the sale itself, especially the New York leg, was a gamble just because you never put so many eight-figure artworks in an online sale before. There were a lot of unknowns here. And so that's why it was so exciting when you had what seemed like unexpected bidding on like the Roy Lichtenstein nude with Joyce painting. 
uh, where you had a socialist from Hong Kong come in after a long bidding battle between, between Barry White and Maria Lowe's, Adrian Meyer being the auctioneer. Uh, Elaine Kwok jumped in with a bid from Hong Kong, and that pushed it to be the biggest lot of the night. Mm-hmm. which uh, was quite exciting when you were watching it because you can see how, in a very unexpected development, you can sell artworks for almost half of $100 million online, essentially. This was $46.2 million, to be precise. But it wasn't alone. I mean, there were some pretty significant pieces. I mean, what was the story with the Barnett Newman? Well... The, the Newman, it didn't really go beyond what uh, they were expecting it to, but it did have, I think, the highest estimate of the night, the 30 to 40 million. And so, you know, even though it stalled around 27 million at the hammer price, with the premium it ended being 30.9 million, which is a, a stratospheric number. So, like, yes, sometimes there wasn't that much bidding on these works, but just by the sheer, you know, force of, of the Christie's team getting guarantees or getting prearranged bids, they could sell these works in the middle of a pandemic in a global economic slowdown. They were successfully selling works for $30, 40000000 million, which is astounding. A Bryce Martin abstraction that yeah. went for $30.9 million, the same as the Barnett Newman. And Bryce Martin is a, a, a living abstract painter, and this was three times his previous record. Yeah. Again, I think we, we have to give it to the hustle of the, of the, the Christie's staff here because this is a, a remarkable Bryce Martin, to be sure, but it's just a little risky to put something like this in an online sale at this time. What they did was they took the Martin the weekend before the sale. They physically they took it in a big van up to the Hamptons and installed it in the Parish Art Museum so all the collectors out in the Hamptons could come see it in person. And they just did that on a whim. They were like, That's we need to bring these works to our clients. And where are our clients? They're in the Hamptons. So these are going to the Hamptons. Pulled out every stop. And it paid off. Because I think a work like this, really, when you see them in person, up close, you realize mm-hmm. that just the muscular ability of these paintings to really, you know, take over your imagination when you're physically with them. And... Christie's realizing it, they brought the painting physically to the collectors. They wanted people to see it. You know, there's more money out on that, you know, isthmus than anywhere else in, <laughs> in the East Coast right now. So how did the sale turn out and how did it work in its, its kind of ulterior motive, which was to maintain supremacy over Sotheby's in ruling the auction market? Well, it worked because it grossed an incredible amount of money for an online sale and certainly did beat out yes. Sotheby's uh, just by the numbers alone. They were able to sell everything 97% by value. You know, there was every reason why this could have been a lackluster sale. Half of these eight-figure works could have not sold. We've seen that before at auction. There was no reason why this was going to be a, an unparalleled success, but it was. Now we really have to just reckon with the fact that Christie's can adapt to this new landscape and still be the number one auction house, even as we have to deal with these new restrictions. The sale brought in a, a whopping $421 million, which is pretty astonishing. How does that compare to a normal year, though? I mean, if we were to look at this in context 
with what Christie's could realistically expect to get in a non-pandemic environment. How, how does it compare? Well, it's down. That was to be expected. You know, we're hearing that gallery sales, for instance, are down 70%. So you can't just expect auction houses to go completely unscathed. Last year, the total that was gross in the, the equivalent uh, spring summer sales were $716 million. This year, uh, Christie said that with uh, its Hong Kong evening sale included, it sold $500 million worth of art in 24 hours. Again, an incredible amount of money. There's no doubt about that. But it is down over $200 million from the year mm-hmm. before. As, as an auction expert, would you say it delivered on this promise of making the sale come to life online? I think it came to life quite vividly for the consigners who made a lot of money and they got to watch this $46 million enter into their bank account. Uh, But for the average viewer that didn't have a stake in what was going on and would be able to compare the experience of watching online to uh, the experience of going to a number of auctions, and I'm talking about myself here because I obviously don't have uh, any skin in the game money-wise, it was not, you obviously couldn't compare, but that's just the reality of the world that we're living in. There's no way to replicate a concert just by watching it on your laptop. Uh, and it's the same thing with auction houses. Was it uh, boring? No. It was fun to watch. The move from city to city was a great way to keep it rolling. But, you know, that's wishful thinking to say that it can be just as intoxicating as being in a skybox in Rockefeller Center. You know, you can't replicate that. You can say it all you want in PR pitches, but you can't replicate that. I wonder if it begs the question of whether this kind of adaptation and evolution of the auction houses is going to be enough to make them make sense as as businesses, because they have such enormous fixed costs of having these gigantic auction rooms all over the world. They have very expensive staff. They have, you know, huge budgets for catalogs, events, and everything. But I thought it was notable that Louis Guzer, who was this kind of famous rainmaker at Christie's, really revitalized the house and sold the Salvatore Mundi painting by Leonardo da Vinci for $450 million. And he's left the traditional auction model behind and has now just recently released an app, which is obviously a lot cheaper than an auction house and a lot more web natives. What do you think is going to happen with these behemoths, these slow moving tankers of of auction houses over time? Well, I think that it's hard to say what's going to happen in the long term, but in the short term, you know, like we said, even if you're selling $500 million worth of art, that's $200 million left. So the 200 million has to come from somewhere. And, um, there's going to be cuts in, in the way of just eliminating positions that were once necessary that now aren't, you know, positions that are related to events and dinners and sort of a lot of in-person activities that can't really take place anymore. But I think that what Loic is doing, and I talked to him extensively about this for a story, is just kind of a different animal entirely. Uh, it's not really a model that the auction houses can follow because it's almost the antithesis of what the auction world wants. The auction houses want anyone who could possibly pay for an object to be able to get online and pay for it. Whereas the week 
has only invited his friends. And Luik's friends are, you know, like 0.0001% of um, the art buying public globally. You know, they are, you know, the front row of the evening sale type, type of people. Um, and also, he's only selling one work per week. They're sort of like fighting two different wars. Um, but just the, the amount of attention that Luik's Fair Warning app has gotten uh, is testament to just how good he is at what he does. And if he does try to either expand this project or open up some other kind of larger scale project, um, it could be very interesting to see how the auction houses respond. Well, Nate, I, I hope that you're going to be back in the middle of the fray at an actual auction house before too long. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, Andrew, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.